This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. That's a question that I commonly get from my students as to why is this the first time I'm hearing these names? And why is this the first time I'm hearing not only these names, but the way in which they are interpreting scripture and utilizing scripture um, for causes of freedom and liberation and justice? And um, one of the things I hope my book does is draw attention to these um, hidden figures or hidden voices, if you will, and how Christianity has a rich history um, of Black Christian thought Mm -hmm. um, in which scripture is uh, powerful and aids the interpreter in the interpreter's understanding of who God is in the world and what God is doing in the world. Um, so, you know, I start early on in the book from 1700s and I work my way through to the mid 20th century. And I think each interpreter, each interpreter's voice is very powerful in the way in which they are reading these scriptures, reading God's word and saying, look inside this powerful book that we have. And let us hear God speak to us um, through these pages and see that our God is a God of liberation. Our God is a God of justice. Um, it, yeah, it, it's been a, an amazing journey for me as a scholar and researcher in researching these documents and um, reading these stories of these incredibly powerful, tenacious um yeah, sophisticated, just brilliant people hmm. who, in the midst of, of such in many ways horrendous and horrific circumstances, um, held fast to their faith. And um, I, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wonder if you even, as you were researching the book, were thinking to yourself, how come I've never heard of this person before? Did you stumble onto people that you were surprised to find? Yes, yes. So, yeah, um, there were a number of interpreters of the book in the book that I had not heard of until I started doing research on the project. And yes, I had that same question: Why have I not heard of these people before? Mm-hmm. Um, why have I not come across their writings? Um, and so uh, I. Again, I hope that this book kind of fills that gap, a very wide gap, if you will, in thinking about um, how um, African-Americans have interpreted scripture throughout the centuries Mm -hmm. and how scripture for them has been a powerful um, source of encouragement, but also a powerful source of resistance to many of the challenges and trials and tribulations they face in terms of oppression 
white supremacy, racism, all of those things, scripture has been um, a resource and a source for these interpreters. Not just a resource for them. I think one of the things that you do that was very helpful for me is you help show how it, it, it should have been a resource for the white people that surrounded them, both in the North and yeah. the South. So it was not just a Southerner's problem, but they were actually yeah. having to teach and instruct white Christians about their own scripture, which yeah. was partially the source of their oppression is the use of scripture against them. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that, I think that's another, um, element I hope people take away from the book is that what was happening in these times in which I'm covering in the text is not just a Southern problem. It was a national problem, right? A Mm -hmm. national situation. And the fact that these interpreters are, as you say, um, interpreting scripture in ways that are counter to the dominant narrative, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. They're often being preached to and, and told that you know it's God's will for you to be enslaved. Um, they're being preached certain certain particular passages of scripture that um, those who are proponents of slavery are, are using to kind of try to legitimize what's happening in the slavery project. And yet you see these interpreters time and time again refute those interpretive moves. Mm-hmm. refute that kind of um, racist logic, if you will, and say, wait a minute, let's look at what scripture is actually saying. Um, and they are, um, yeah, they're, they are on the front lines, if you will, of, um, of, of the battle. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciated how you opened the book with well, I don't know if you opened it, but it, somewhere at the beginning, you talked about a woman who was raised in slavery yeah. who refused to listen to anybody reading the Apostle Paul. Yeah. Uh, maybe you could just uh, share with us as to why she, why a good, faithful Christian woman would mm-hmm. refuse to listen to anybody even reading the Apostle Paul out loud. Yeah. So I opened, you're right, I opened the book with a story about Nancy Ambrose, who is Howard Thurman's grandmother. Mm-hmm. Howard Thurman, um, preacher, pastor, scholar, theologian in his own right um, in the 20th century. He tells this story in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, about his grandmother, Nancy Ambrose, who was um, an enslaved woman. And um, she never learned to read or write. And so, you know, after after slavery, after um, Civil War, um, she promises, she makes her promise to herself, actually, while she's enslaved, that if she ever becomes free, she doesn't, doesn't want to hear anything read from the Apostle Paul except for 1 Corinthians 13. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because her owner would always preach slaves obey your master, that particular text from Paul. And so Howard Thurman tells a story about how he would often read scripture to his grandmother because she never learned to read. And he noticed that she was pretty particular about the parts of scripture that she wanted mm-hmm. him to read. And he, he, te- he says how one day he gets up the courage to ask her, like, 
why is it that you never want me to read anything from Paul? And she tells him why, right? That the slave owner would only preach slaves obey your master. And she had made that promise to herself that she didn't want to hear anything from Paul if she ever became free. And so that story is a really powerful story on so many levels because it tells us how Paul was preached to the enslaved um, and how um, some enslaved persons rejected that rejected parts of Paul, right? And rejected Mm -hmm. scripture because of how scripture was taught and, and preached to them. So I opened the book with that story because I think it's important to understand how scripture was used to justify oppression um, and enslavement. And then you have all of these voices, I think, which are just as important, if you will, as Nancy Ambrose's voice that lift Mm -hmm. up how um, many African-Americans use scripture for justice and freedom. So you have some who go the way of Nancy Ambrose, but what I found in my research, which was um, surprising to me actually, was that more often than not, African-Americans utilized scripture in in ways that were positive, in ways in which they saw God as a liberator in scripture. Um, And so... Yeah, I think it's important that that story is is told, but also these other stories uh, lifted right. up as well. Yeah, yeah, I think we could all sympathize with her. Yes, uh, like I think we, I think we would all feel similarly. But yeah, um, the task of your book is then to go through and show how people uh, there was there was a whole sector of thinkers and preachers and and uh, resistance fighters in the in, in the intellectual movement of scripture and the actual the political output of it that said no no, no Paul is actually on our side right yeah. exactly so, yeah um, I, if I can read a, a little bit from uh, the 1774 slave petition maybe you could tell us what this is and then I just want to read a little section that you highlighted as is an example of them employing Paul to, to reason with their masters that what they're doing is unscriptural. It goes against what Paul is saying. Yeah. So this is one of the earlier, um, earliest petitions we have of enslaved um, Africans petitioning in this particular petition, writing to the governor of Massachusetts and um, writing a petition arguing for their freedom. And they are um, utilizing scripture in their petition to do so. Uh, yeah. And it's 1774. So we're talking about before the official establishment of the United States. Yes. Have this, mm-hmm. And I, I do wonder if, if my own undergraduate students would be able to reason as well. <laughs> I, <laughs> I wish they could, but sometimes <laughs> I wish they could. Um, but I'll just read a section of it that um, is very powerful. Um, the whole thing is, but this is especially powerful in the way in which they employ scripture. And they say, thus our lives are embittered to us on these accounts by our deplorable situation. We are rendered incapable of showing our obedience to an almighty God. Mm -hmm. How can a slave perform the duties of a husband to a wife or a parent Mm -hmm. to his child? How can a husband leave master and work and cleave to his wife? Mm -hmm. How can the wife submit themselves to their husbands in all things? How can the child obey their parents in all things? 
There's a great number of us, sincere members of the Church of Christ. How can the master and the slave be said to fulfill the command, live in love, let brotherly love uh, abound, bear ye one another's burdens? How can the master be said to bear my burden when he bears me down with the chains of slavery? And uh, sorry, I think this is oppression. oppresses me. Yeah, yeah. Oppression, oppression against my my will. And how we can we fulfill our part of duty to Him whilst in this condition? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. it, it actually begins with a very quick description of the way in which husbands, wives, and children, and and parents are torn apart from each other and sent to different plantations and and basically yeah. separated. And that's so coming from that same slaves obey your masters, they're following the logic out saying, how can we do it given the situation that's been created here? Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I, I want to hear your reflections on that. Yeah. I, I mean, when I read this, um, I was really struck by the in, ingenuity of these interpreters and the powerful move that they make in saying in, in a sense saying, okay, you all want to start here, but let's start here. Mm-hmm. Let's start with um, families. How can I as a husband love my wife if we are torn apart? How can we take care of our children if we are separated? And I think, um, you know, these household codes, as they are often called in scholarship are seen in many ways um, as restrictive and um, not good codes <laughs> to, to say, mm-hmm. you know, to say it lightly. I mean, to say it in, in, a, in another way. But these interpreters um, actually take what many of us see as negative and use it to critique um, their own situation. And that is an ingenious move on their part. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. And the way they 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 use it in the petition to talk about the importance of black family, black life, to talk about how our families matter, right? In a context in which um, they are seen as really non-human, right. Yeah. And they also, other parts of scripture they're using there too is Galatians, right? Bear ye one another's burdens. And and they ask, how can the master be said to bear my burden when he's the one oppressing me, you know, um, binding me in these chains? Um, and then they're also quoting Hebrews, which at this time, um, they believe to be authored by Paul. Right. Live in, yeah, live in love. Let brotherly love continue. How can brotherly love and slavery coexist? In essence, they're saying it can't, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, they are making these really powerful um, moves and interpretive strategies in scripture to undercut and really to um, resist what they are constantly being told that scripture does um, in fact justify their enslavement and they're using these scriptures to say no they do not yeah I mean it was 
it's so I told you before, like I was reading this on the subway and I cried like a baby under my mask trying to play it off. But at this point, you just yeah. it, it, breaks, it breaks through the kind of hypothetical of what Paul is saying into the actual of people who are who are basically rhetorically saying, how can I? I can't. How can uh, I? I can't. How can I? You won't let me. Uh-huh. Almost like I would kill to have these problems. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. Which begs a whole series of questions. Um, but one of the questions that it raises for me is, um, I mean, it, would you go as far as to say, I might go as far, it may hold me back if I'm wrong, to say, that the white masters, the white church in general, if we can talk about, if we can just talk about broadly construed a white church and a black church at this point in America, whatever that those terms refer to, that they actually needed these interpretive moves. They needed to hear these things. And it, and it was uniquely the black church who was sitting in this deplorable situation who, who could appropriately correct their masters. On I mean, we, we'd like to say, you know, Jonathan Edwards or some really smart theologian could have come in here and figured this all out themselves. But I, I wonder if it was actually the problem was not just all the the normal sociological problems of the peculiar institution of racism and, and slavery, mm-hmm. but the problem was they weren't listening to the full breadth of the voice of God through all their brothers and sisters as well. That that feeds that like back channel feeds into the problem. Is, am I going too far in saying that? Yeah, I think um, if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, I think what these interpreters do is one. Well, one of the they do a lot of, but one of the things they do is say we have to look at scripture holistically, right? While the slavery project is concentrated on these particular mm. passages. These interpreters come back and say, wait a minute, what does the what do these other parts of scripture say? And let's broaden the canon, if you will. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's there's one place in the in the last chapter, I think, in the book I talk about, I lift up what Abraham Smith talks about, how part of the slavery project was to bring premature closure to the canon of Paul. Hmm. And so you have these interpreters saying, let's open up the canon, the Pauline canon, and let's see what else is there. And when we look, we see that there's more there than what you're telling us, slaves obey your masters, right? There is Galatians 3.28 there. There is um, bear you one another's burdens there. Hmm. Um there is the spirit of God. Um, whoever has the spirit of God is the child of God. There are all these other passages that are there that we need to take a look at. And so I think one of the things that these interpreters do is um, lift up the, the beauty and power of scripture and the, um, maybe I should say, multifaceted nature of scripture. Mm-hmm. Whereas the slavery project was um, bent on um, holding fast to particular portions of scripture. The um, I, I I think I told you already. One of my favorite stories uh, that you told was is it John G? Is that how you say it? Do you know John J. 
Jay. Is it John Jay? Okay. Jay, I went uh-huh. back and forth a million times when I was reading it. <laughs> okay. So John Jay, which is spelled J-E-A uh, mm-hmm, for the last mm-hmm, name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how the how illiteracy was used to uh, c- compound the problem for the slaves and, and the black right. man and, and woman in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and how he has the miracle of literacy, mm-hmm. uh, which is has to be tested on the spot, right? So mm-hmm. like, no, you can't actually read. And he said, put something in front of me and I'll read it. And he, mm-hmm. he can read it. Um, and Dutch and English, strangely mm-hmm. enough, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which, you know, being in, I, I'm li- literally sitting in New Amsterdam in New York City right now. So oh, uh, where yeah, Dutch yes. and English would have been the primary languages here yes, uh, in yes. John G- Jay's day. So, um, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about uh, how literacy for him, uh, well, I mean, what effect did that have? I mean, we think of literacy as a basic right for all Americans, something that everybody deserves to, to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but what did it do for him? Yeah. Um, so when we think about trying to limit slaves' access, the enslaved access to scripture, um, keeping the enslaved illiterate was so important, right? Because you get to tell them what's in the book and they can't check behind you, right? They can't um, read for themselves. And so one um, important element of the slavery project was to keep the enslaved illiterate. The other thing I would say too is we also know that there were alternative creation stories told. And I do talk about that in the book as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's another way, you know, you want to keep the enslaved dominated by telling them you weren't created by God. Um, that was one part of the alternative creation story. Um, and then J- John Jay tells us in his own story how his owner would often tell him, you have no God, mm-hmm. you have no God. And so the miracle of literacy that Jay experiences is profound on so many levels. So he prays to um, be able to learn to read. God grants him that miracle. And as you say, they want to test it to see if he actually can read and he can. And that miracle um, propels his freedom, if you will. So he's. He's already been converted. He's already had a a profound conversion experience that he talks about in his autobiography. And then after that conversion experience, he gets this um, miracle of literacy. And that miracle um, enables him to be free because once the magistrates see that he really can read, they are like, okay, this is something that only God could have done. And so you really should be free. And he goes out and he starts a church. He's kind of like a, a early church planter, right? right. Revivalist <laughs> church planter. Yeah. Right. So he plants a church, he and some, him and some friends, and then he starts out preaching around the world as well. And so I think that miracle of literacy um, speaks to so many levels. It speaks to his spiritual freedom, right? But it also speaks to the connection between spiritual freedom and physical freedom. Mm-hmm. And that um, for him, mm-hmm. as well as many of these black interpreters, the spiritual and the physical are very much connected to each other. Yeah. 
So I'm, I'm spiritually free, but I should also be physically free as well. And so I think that's one of the elements that his story lifts up for us, you know, his, his um, profound, the profound miracle that he gets of literacy. And he, you know, he goes around the world preaching and he sees himself as this kind of apostolic figure in the, in the, in the vein of Paul. He talks about how he, in his ministry, he works with his hands as Paul did, you know, so that he wouldn't be a burden to the churches. So he really sees himself as this kind of Paul, Pauline figure, if you will, going out proclaiming the gospel um, to the ends of the earth. And his story is really remarkable um, because, you know, at the beginning of his story, he talks about how he didn't want anything to do with Christianity because his owners right. were Christians and he saw how awful they treated him and the other enslaved persons and he didn't want anything to do with Christianity, but he has, as I said, his own conversion experience. And he realizes that the Christianity that his owners professed was not real Christianity. I, maybe I love that story so much also because I feel like I had a similar experience when I became a Christian started reading scripture and I was like oh there's so much more here than what I thought was here and then I feel like the rest of my life has been trying to tell Christians about all the other stuff that they don't pay attention to in scripture yeah, right, right. <laughs> which is I guess the job of a biblical scholar right um yes but but also it it you know and you can we can get as political as you want here but um I, I do think people who who struggle with understanding, like um, why I might actually need uh, the Black Church's interpretation of things in various mm. parts of American history. Why it's not just it's not just something that's handy to have thrown into the mix, but I actually need to hear their voices. I need to hear. Mm. I come from kind of lower lower class white, uh, so I I need to hear the voices of those people. I need to hear people who've only lived in homogeneous societies and people who've lived in highly heterogeneous societies. That, that, that I actually need to hear those voices to help me understand the elephant that we're all standing around, right? Mm -hmm. um, however, here's the big but. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, if, if John Jay's, uh, the glory of John Jay's life is that he learns how to read scripture, sees what's all, all there, and the, the power that can be held over people who don't know what's all in scripture, I look around the church today and, you know, I have undergrads that come in every semester from all across the country. And just to be quite honest, they don't know what's in scripture mm -hmm. and their, their pastors and churches aren't necessarily super great at trying to help them understand all the hard parts of scripture, all the parts that maybe they don't mm -hmm. want to hear. If you think about there's parts that slave masters didn't want their slaves to hear. Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder what you think just in general about the, and I'm, I'm asking this is a big question about the the black church broadly construed in America, their level of Bible literacy versus I, I feel like in the white church, which is the part I know the best, the Bible literacy is going down, 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 down. But it's because there's nothing at stake for them, really. Now, it's just like um, theological ideas and in group, out group, orthodoxy or not. Um, where I feel like when I interact with the black church or when I'm teaching in the black church or something like that. I feel like they're always right there with me, no matter what Bible, Bible story I try to dredge up. They they know about it already, and they can go with me. Um, 
So this idea of Bible Bible literacy as power, uh, do you see that from your perch over in a seminary, or is this just is this my own little, little idiosyncratic view? No, I think what you're touching on is the fact that the Bible, for many um, Black Christians throughout the centuries, has been central to um, their faith and understanding of who God is. And God is a God who is at work in their lives on a daily basis. And so there is this sense that. my experience matters to God and God matters to my experience. Um, so there is this, um, I'm trying to think of how I can phrase that. Um, I was going to say, because I can hear, you know, someone raising a non-denominational church in America going like, well, yeah, I believe Mm -hmm. that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's a really easy thing to say, but I think there's a yeah. palpable difference that you're talking about here. Yeah. And I think you see it early on, like even in that petition that you read, like there's this real concrete sense that God speaks to me. I speak to God and everything that I'm experiencing in, li- I'm experiencing in life is somehow connected to the God who is for us. Mm. And that there is um, nothing outside of God's purview. Mm. There is no part of my life that is outside of of God. God is concerned about every part of me. Mm. And I think that goes to to one of the ways in which these interpreters kind of counter this separation between um, spiritual and physical, mm-hmm. spiritual and social, like that dichotomy for these interpreters, that dichotomy does not exist. So if for them, salvation is holistic, like salvation affects my body, but it also affects um, my, my social life. Right. So, you know, just for an, ex- just for an example, you will see in these interpreters this sense that because I am a baptized believer, that automatically translates into my status in society, hmm. right? Because so you had people, you know, back then who were saying, "Okay, we're going to pass laws," <laughs> because they and I think one of the one of the reasons why they passed these laws is because they realized that these interpreters were right hmm. that my Status as a baptized believer, even though I'm an enslaved person, I, I'm I'm a Christian. I'm I confess Christ. I've been baptized. That should translate into my physical liberty. Hmm. So you have states eventually making laws that say, okay, yeah, even though you have been baptized, that makes that has no 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 bearing on your physical status. But for the, you know, for for the African-Americans, that dichotomy did not make sense. Right. Yeah. If let's my, uh, can we yeah. can we flesh that out for a second? Because yeah. they're like, OK, you're baptized. Great. Congratulations. So the dichotomy you seem to be pointing out is so when you die, you you will be in the heavens alongside me. But until then, I'm still your master and you're still my slave. That's the dichotomy that 
that right. the black church are like, no, that cannot hold these. Can, we cannot separate these two things. Right. Exactly. Right. And so it translates my, so the connection between the spiritual and the social and the political, they are mm-hmm. all connected in the, in the black church, if you will, um, in the, in the black community in, in this time. And so that separation um, is one that is foreign to Black Christian identity during this time. And um, you see, okay, so another example would be Zilpha Elah. Mm-hmm. And, and part of her, and she has a fascinating story. A very well. fascinating story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you chronicled the whole thing out because it was like page turner. Uh, yeah, she just has these, again, these profound divine encounters with God. And um, she's another you know, famous uh, Black female preacher. She goes around preaching and teaching. But one of the places in her autobiography, she talks about the presence of the Spirit. And um, she uses Acts, Acts 17.26, to talk about the presence of the Spirit. God gives God's spirit to both black people and white people. I'm I'm paraphrasing her, of course, but Mm -hmm. she she says God gives God's spirit to both black and white, making no distinction. And then she extrapolates from that. Then we should not make a distinction either between black and white. So that move from the the spiritual, the presence of the spirit in our lives Hmm. to political social implications then though the distinctions that that are now being made in society those distinctions should no longer be so it was it was really a seamless kind of move if you will um for these interpreters who saw the, the fluidity of the spirit moving upon the earthly and how how that um should really um get rid of these dichotomies, these distinctions, these racial distinctions that were being promoted in the nation. I mean, forgive me for sounding, this may sound so obvious or maybe just crass, but I feel like the, the kinds of things that you're saying that they can't tolerate these distinctions, these fault, what we call false dichotomies, I feel like it's half of what I do in a classroom every semester mm. is try to knock down Gnosticism, Marcionism and Gnosticism. And, and what I hear you saying is basically they seem to have appropriated the biblical author's view of society, community, the body, the individual. Um, and I mean, I, I'd be interested. Do you have a hot take as to why you think the majority church in America? Actually, I don't even know if numerically that would have been true at some points here. But uh, the white church in America, the European uh, church in America, why they jump to these dichotomies so quickly and and uh why it was so, why it's still so hard for me to flush these out when i get freshmen in every semester yeah i mean that's a huge question drew yeah um, sorry <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> but i keep puzzling over it yeah well i think you know if we, if we go back in time and we think about um what's happening in these early centuries of the nation there is this um, desire to conquer, right? Desire mm. to conquer and dominate. Mm. And um, that has economic also implications, right? Um, 
to be able to dominate, conquer, and utilize um, Black labor for economic profit. I think that all of that has a huge part to play in how scripture then becomes a way to Mm. quote unquote sanctify what we're doing, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of sanctify this really dehumanization project for the ends of economic um, uplift and gain. And so I think, you know, when we think about why this, these type of readings um, and when I say these type of readings, I'm talking about the, the readings that slave owners were doing during this time. Mm-hmm. Those who were participating in the slavery project, th- these type, the readings they're doing help them to kind of justify why they're doing what they're doing, mm-hmm. right? If, if they can dehumanize uh, African-Americans and say, oh, you weren't created by God. Um, or the other passage in scripture they use, the ham story. Right? Mm. You are cursed. God cursed you for slavery. I talk about Jos- Josiah Priest in the book, who was a pro-slavery mm-hmm. advocate, who um, utilized, that was one of the scriptures he used to talk about um, Blacks as forever destined to be slaves. And um, so I think scripture becomes a a tool in their toolbox, if you will, Mm -hmm. for justifying um, exploitation and really all of the atrocities that you see in the slavery project. Yeah, that's that's horrifically fascinating because I I was not expecting an economic (laughs) answer. But, you know, the South, I think the, the analyses have been done and it was famously it was it was a famously a collapsed economic project unless you had the steady mm-hmm. supply of free free labor quote unquote free labor right. uh, relatively speaking mm-hmm. and once that was taken away that the economy collapsed uh right. so there, there's a daily pressure that you actually you uh you need to dehumanize for the sake of the market um mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. terrifies me i said it's horrific because i can think of all kinds of ways in which we can still do this exact same maneuver today right um, yeah yeah mm-hmm. well dr lisa bowens uh thank you so much for this book african-american readings of paul thank you so much for your time uh and walking through some of these ideas with us oh thank you for having me thank you so much You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.